Hello everybody and welcome to the ninth episode of Beyond the Echo Chamber. I'm your host, Theo Boltman, and welcome to the podcast. Hello everybody, today I interviewed Tim Wilson. He is the MP of Goldstein in the House of Representatives. He was in the IPA, he was the Human Rights Commissioner for two years. He's part of the Australian Liberal Party, very successful, very intelligent. So I interviewed him for the podcast. Yep. Um... I had a lot of consideration to whether I should or shouldn't post this episode, but I feel like I should be honest with you guys because that's just like the vibe. Um, I didn't have a great time interviewing him. This is, this hasn't really happened to me before, but I don't, this was just my opinion. You could take a different opinion on this. I felt as though he was very disrespectful and was talking down to me and kept interrupting me. He kept claiming that I, that didn't happen. This didn't happen. That didn't happen when I found press conferences that proved that that did happen and he did say that. Uh, He made a comment about how I need to stop using Wikipedia when actually those sources were The Age and The Guardian, which it's his decision how accurate those are. But yeah, this was just my opinion on the episode, but you can take your own opinion. But I felt as though he treated me just like a teenager and that he was very above me and much better than me. Uh, and yeah, that's how I personally felt. I considered a lot whether just completely scrapping this episode and not publishing it. And then I had a bit of a moral dilemma, how I should talk about this episode with you guys, whether I should acknowledge his attitude. Is that the right word? But I decided to publish this. Yep. Uh, you guys listen to the, I'm not going to like comment on every part of the podcast. I'll probably do something at the end about certain parts I really didn't enjoy. Uh, He, I had to, I keep saying a lot, you'll notice, oh, just working out my questions. That's because he kept interrupting me with questions. So I'd have to work out which question I was at and have to scrap certain questions because he didn't like talking about certain topics. So I just wanted you guys to understand that, why I kept being like, oh, don't have my questions. And he kept like giving me judgy looks about that. I wasn't unprepared. He just kind of like put me off. Um, I hope you guys enjoy the episode. I don't know if that's really the right word. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Take a listen. Tim Wilson, Mr. Wilson, Tim. Welcome. Tim's fine. I like Tim. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Being Thanks for having chamber. me. Thank you for coming. This is this is great. Uh, let's just dive straight into it. We don't have a lot of time, so let's get sure. into it. Um, how do you think you've positively influenced your community? Uh, so we've done lots of different things. Um, we work regularly with the councils and community organisations to get support for local infrastructure projects, particularly around women's sport. One of the best things, one of the amazing things about the Goldstein community is that it's enveloped by Port Phillip, but the trade-off is that we don't have a lot of open sports spaces. It's a very developed community, so we're always looking at how we can improve the existing community infrastructure um, on the ground. But um, in addition to that, everything I do in Canberra at a national level has a direct impact on our community, whether it's making sure uh, that self-funded retirees have retiree security and security retirement uh, through to delivery of marriage for same-sex couples, all of it has an impact. 
Um, at what point in your life did you realise you wanted to go into politics? So I've always been interested in politics, but more critically public policy. Um, and so I made the decision to actually go into politics in 2016. It had been something that was an option before then, but I always took the view, and I, you know, as an aspiring senator that you are, Theo, uh, that you should go off and have a really happy and successful career regardless of politics. When you get elected, they take you into the federal parliament and they tell you how many people have had the privilege to serve since uh, Federation, so 1901. Now, I don't know the exact number, but when I was elected, it was about 1,400 people over that 116 years, which is not many. So, And for every um, 1,400 people, there'd be many times that who aspired but never got there. So the best thing is have a happy and successful career, regardless of politics, and maybe politics might come across, come along. Mm. Um, in 2017, Australia voted in a referendum to legalise gay marriage. Um, as a gay man in the Liberal Party, how did it feel knowing some of your peers were vocal about voting against it and influencing others to follow? Well, in 2017, the people of Australia voted for marriage to include same-sex couples. We didn't create a new institution. It's very important. We were enlarging the franchise and... Uh, saying that everybody had equal dignity uh, under the law. Now, of course, some people voted um, differently uh, in the House and the Senate, and everybody forgets what happened in the Senate where you had Labor Party senators um, abstaining or voting against, uh, and you had other minor parties as well, some coalition MPs. Uh, truthfully, I'm a great believer in free speech and a free society. People will have different views. Uh, this should not be threatening or challenging to people. It should be a call to action to be persuasive in your arguments, not to belittle and demean your opponents because they're good people who have a different opinion for legitimate, often legitimate reasons. And if you expect respect, you should show it to others in return. Mm. Um, during your time in the IPA, you were a vocal critic against the Human Rights Commission and even voted against it, I believe. That's false. Oh, really? Yeah. Sorry, I've just been reading all these articles about No, it. I know that most of those articles are misleading because if you actually read them very carefully, the IPA... Uh, was critical of the Human Rights Commission. Um, and uh, I was um, critical of it in the sense that they weren't focusing enough on fundamental rights uh, and freedoms, um, which is true. In fact, the reason I was able to be appointed Australia's Human Rights Commissioner is because the former Labor government tried to abolish the job of Australia's Human Rights Commissioner. Nobody seems to remember that. Uh, and uh, left the vacant role for many role vacant for many years while they were locking children up in detention um, on offshore detention centres as well as onshore detention centres. Um, were trying to license the media and suppress free speech and pass laws that limited the free expression of Australians. Some of us stood up against that. Um, the Human Rights Commission didn't. Um, that was because the Office of Australia's Human Rights Commissioner was left vacant during that Labor government. Uh, and so when there was a change of government, we were able to appoint somebody to that job to stand up and address the very issues that uh, people like me were concerned about. It just happened to be me as well. Um, when you became the Human Rights Commissioner in February of 2014, you resigned your membership to the Liberal Party. Yep. What made you make the decision and what made you return? Well, the the, the General principle is that as a statutory officer, you are not supposed to be a partisan political figure. The office by its nature is political because human rights are political, but you're not supposed to be doing it from a partisan basis. So um, I, it was. it's not an explicit condition, it's a convention, and I adhered to the convention. 
uh, and I, um, I rejoined the Liberal Party the day I resigned as Human Rights Commissioner um, on the basis that I was seeking Liberal Party pre-selection for the Federal Electorate of Goldstein, which I then went on and won, then won uh, uh, at the general election and became a member for Goldstein. Um, as a gay man and a member of the Liberal Party, how do you feel about the Religious Discrimination Act and its potential effects on your personal life? Well, Australia doesn't have a Religious Discrimination Act. There is a Religious Discrimination Bill. Oh, sorry. It says bill. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I, we have a Sex Discrimination Act, which covers issues of sex, gender and sexual orientation and gender identity. We have a Disability Discrimination Act. We have a... Um, uh, what am I missing? Um, Race Discrimination Act, etc. And religious, uh, uh, we have religious discrimination laws at a state level. I think, I think I'd have to check at all state level. Um, and it's been attempted by the Labor Party in the past to introduce a, a form of religious discrimination protection. I have no issue with doing so, but getting the balance in law is difficult in this area because respecting somebody's religion, particularly on issues of morality, can often then coincide or come into conflict with other people's form of self-expression. And so we have to get the bill right. I was working with the Prime Minister and the Attorney General uh, before um, when it was being discussed. Obviously, COVID-19 has taken over conversations because there are more urgent priorities and we'll wait and see what happens. Mm. Um. During your time as the Human Rights Commissioner, you fought strongly against the prosecution of Andrew Bolt and his vilification of Indigenous Australians. No, that's not right. Uh, you um, need to broaden your reading beyond Wikipedia. That case occurred before I was appointed as Human Rights Commissioner. What I argued against was the false, uh, uh, the false, um, uh, the basis of law that in which he was challenged under. So the Race Discrimination Act has a provision called. Section 18C, which makes it unlawful to offend, insult, humiliate or intimidate a person on the basis of race, colour, national or ethnic origin. And uh, there is, it's been a very controversial measure in law because um, there's no other area in federal law where it is unlawful to merely offend somebody. The normal test we have is around what is harassment um, and intimidation. And I have no issue making um, it unlawful to harass or intimidate people, but offending people, particularly on issues like ethnicity or culture, can often mean things like ridiculing um, the basis of different cultural standards and norms. And some cultural standards should be ridiculed, should be challenged. The idea that women should be less than men is something that I think should be ridiculed. But if there is a cultural norm that says so and somebody takes exception to you ridiculing that basis of that culture, you come in convention, you can come in breach of Section 18C. Uh, so uh, I have a problem with that section of law. I've always had a problem with that section of law. It's not given to any other section of the community to put it into, say, context of the Jewish community, or Orthodox Jewish community. If you were to make it unlawful to offend somebody on the basis uh, of their religion, it would amount to an anti-blasphemy law. If you were to uh, make it unlawful to offend somebody on the basis of their sexual orientation, say, it would be unlawful to argue that marriage should be between a man and a woman and not include people of the same gender. I think that's insane, uh, and I'm quite happy to say so. Um, what have you personally committed to... Well, what have you committed to in your personal life and political life to help battle the climate crisis? Uh, well, I've, uh, I'm a member of the Parliamentary Friends of Climate Action. I've always taken climate change very seriously. In fact, 
I'm the only member of the House of Representatives that actually study climate science. So I take it very seriously, but it also needs to be done in a sustainable way. And, uh, you know, phrases like climate crisis are political slogans, often pushed by the Greens political party, amongst others. Uh, If you want to get sustainable outcomes to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, you've got to do it in a way that helps grow the economy concurrent with reducing emissions through efficiency by the adoption of new technology. Uh, And uh, that's what I'm committed to doing because it means we'll actually get reductions in emissions, not mere campaign slogans for um, for political rallies. Mm. Uh, What advice can you give to young political, politically savvy kids like me? Oh, you're politically savvy. I like to consider myself. (laughs) Uh, Well, of course, uh, I'm a a liberal, so I believe in liberal values. And I think um, young people should do more to understand them because uh, the foundations of our country are built from the strength of our liberal democracy. Understand why our liberal democracy is the way it is. The history and the traditions sit behind it. Uh, So study history. Um, because uh, if you don't, you will fall for the same errors that so many other others have fell, fallen for before. Um, there's uh, a lot of political movements out there that sell easy lies uh, to the community about how they can solve problems. Um, if you want a country to move forward, you have to uh, bring people together and find solutions that work for broadly everybody, not just because people have stronger opinions than others. Um, and, uh, and I think if you want, I said it before, if you want respect, you've got to show respect to others and respect the fact that they come from certain places and certain diversities of views. And the best way to be heard is to listen to them too. Um, because the art of persuasion, which is about taking people from where they are and how they think about an issue to where you want them to think about an issue and how they should think about it. And if you just berate and yell at people, as many people who are very politically energised do, you actually don't achieve that. It's about um, a rational understanding of the basis of their thinking and taking them on a journey. Mm. Um, recently, oh, how in... Sorry, got my questions confused. How in Parliament has essentially the vibe changed since COVID-19 took over and what's going on with the world? How has Parliament kind of reflected that? Well, on a practical level, we've had less parliamentary sittings. uh, And even when we go to parliament now, um, we have uh, social distancing like everybody else. uh, And so only about half of us are able to be in the chamber at any given time. So we've worked out ways with the opposition and everyone else to make that work so that the business of government can keep going. A lot of the committee work has been stalled, but um, we've kept doing it as I chair the economics committee of the parliament. So we've kept going and having hearings via uh, uh, web conference and the like, um, and that's been going well. Uh, but the, the reality is the priorities of the parliament have also changed. Um, if you want people, uh, the, pe- if you've ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? I haven't. Oh, you should go and study it. Um, it's good. It's, it's basically about the human condition and it's about the, um, the hierarchy of how people can live their lives. And if people don't have basic issues of security, um, food, water, housing, etc., then they won't move on and move up to other higher concerns, which might be beyond themselves, so community, 
um, the environment and the like. And so what's happened as a consequence of COVID-19 is we've obviously got a health crisis, which brings about people's concerns about their health security. But of course, there's also a lot of questions around economic security, about people having jobs, having enough money to support themselves and the like, which means that their concerns have changed quite a lot. There's some good data in the, um, I think it was in The Age a while ago, which looked at people's concerns in opinion polling. And this is a classic demonstration of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, In January, people were um, comfortable economically. So they were concerned about the bushfires, climate change and the like. And then COVID-19 came along uh, and all of those concerns have fallen off a cliff. And what's gone up? Economics um, and job security and health. Um, and people's health concerns. Now, the health concerns, I think, maybe not in Victoria, but elsewhere are dropping off a bit, but economic concerns are now taking over. So if people don't have baseline solutions to their economic concerns, they will be less concerned about the factors that extend beyond themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, What future plans do you have for Goldstein? Ooh, you made an error there. It's called Goldstein. I, I know, and I'm going to explain why and why it's important that I point it out to a young social justice warrior like yourself. Uh, Goldstein is named after a woman called Vida Goldstein. Vida Goldstein is a suffragette, uh, was suffragette around the turn of the 20th century. She was the first woman to seek election to parliament in the British Empire. She uh, uh, fought for the right of women, obviously, to vote, but also to buy property and to enter marriages on the same terms as men. She's one of the most significant women in Australian history and is... Um, under-celebrated for her contribution, uh, and uh, she explicitly pronounced her name Goldstein, so much so that one of, and I make a point of regularly correcting people in Parliament, and recently one of the more left-wing women in the Labor Party um, took issue with me constantly insisting this, called up, I understand, Claire Wright, who's the kind of author of the major book on Australian suffragette history and Claire Wright I understand had to break it to her that she was wrong and I was right and I'm not saying that out of a I'm right she's wrong but it's very important because she Evida when she was alive made an important point of having her name pronounced correctly so uh, what are the plans for Goldstein well as I said it's one of the smallest electorates in the country 55 square kilometers 105-ish thousand constituents or thereabouts Uh, And one of the things that makes it unique is that it's a completely established community. There is no vacant land outside of a couple of blocks. So our problems aren't like, say, some of the new suburbs around how do we build a freeway. It's how do we deal with the issues of densification where we have more people living in a smaller community. And so it's going to continue to be on what's the social infrastructure we need. And this morning I was on a teleconference with... uh, Jewish community leaders and some of my parliamentary colleagues around some things that I won't go into there. Uh, And then, of course, regular discussions with council around um, what support services we need locally. Uh, So that's where, on a council or or a local level, uh, we do a lot of work. But every issue we deal with in Canberra directly impacts the uh, the electorate that we represent. Um, When we talk about climate change, it has an impact locally. When we talk about tax... Uh, and superannuation that has a big impact locally. When we talk about or the work I do, um, I'm the chair of the economics committee, so a lot of work in financial services where a lot of people who work in banking and financial services locally or involved in that sector or are consumers of banking or financial services. Um, I'm on the intelligence and security committee, 
so uh, oversight of ASIO, ASIS, um, the Australian Federal Police, um, all of those bodies. So all of the issues we, you'll read every day around national security we deal with. Uh, and then also the Treaties Committee. Uh, and the Treaties Committee deals obviously with our relationship with many other countries in a formal way. So, And all of those things have an impact on local business people or local residents or you know uh, any number of people who um, are trying to uh, make a wicket of their life in some way, shape or form. Mm. Um, just a fun final question. Ooh, fun. <laughs> What's Scott Morrison like? Scott, the Prime Minister. Uh, you call him Scott, Scotty. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's like a lot of things. In a formal context, you would call him Prime Minister, but behind closed doors... Um, Actually, I'm trying to think. But behind closed doors, I probably still call him Prime Minister. But when you're a member of Parliament, you don't actually see the Prime Minister that often. And not... I mean, you can see him if you want. But he's got a very big job to do, and so you generally leave him to do it. These days, you might communicate by WhatsApp or SMS a lot more, or if you need something urgently, call. But, you know, I wouldn't seek meetings with the Prime Minister very often unless it was necessary. Um, just because he's got too big a job, and unless, and you can you can also deal with a lot of problems without through his staff by being an elected member of parliament, you can do that. So what's he like? Um, he's a nice bloke. I mean, I'm sort of finding quite you know pleasant and charming and uh, friendly. We get along very well. Uh, uh, we have uh, we've had um, a good relationship, but I mean, it's all professional. The thing about parliament, as much as it's a um, it, it's a very interpersonal environment. It's still in the end a workplace. And so, and one of the things that's really interesting about parliament is everybody who's elected is elected equally in their own right. So I'm elected by this community to represent this community. So if I don't stand up and have the say on behalf of the community, 105,000 people don't have a voice. So you carry the burden of responsibility of standing up and speaking out, popular, unpopular, right or wrong, if you think that's the right thing to say, you should say it. And you have to respect everybody else has that right as well. Uh, and the Prime Minister, as uh, you know, I've uh, certainly reminded Malcolm Turnbull once, uh, he is the first among equals. He is not uh, my boss. Uh, the 105,000 people who vote for me or don't vote for me in this electorate are my boss, and I represent them, and I seek their licence every three years, not the Prime Minister's. And so you have an equal responsibility to hold them to account as well. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is great. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks for coming along. Thank you for listening to another episode of Beyond the Echo Chamber. I'm your host, Theo Boltman. Um, I want to hear what you all thought of that episode, like whether you thought he was being disrespectful or whatever or not, uh, email me at beyondtheechochamber at gmail.com. What else do I have to say? Uh, yeah, I just felt like there were certain times like he was talking about the, like he, during his time in the human rights commission, it wasn't out of the human rights commission as he claims. I searched it up. He fought very strongly against the, like, Oh, what's Andrew Bolt's getting in trouble for like essentially vilifying Aboriginal Australians. And I didn't even say my question yet. And he interrupted me and saying, that's not true. That's not true. And I was like, okay, like, I don't really know what to do. 
Uh, I really didn't like when he claimed I didn't have accurate sources. He interrupted me at multiple points. He didn't seem to really want to do, like, he just seemed like he didn't want to be there. And like, if he doesn't want to be there, then just say no to the interview. Like he kept fiddling around with things, giving half answers. He was very, what I really liked about Katie Allen was she gave accurate responses. She didn't need to agree with every single part of the liberal party's demands while Tim Wilson, instead of answering the questions, he'd be like, he just somehow managed to push it over to it's the liberal, I mean, Labour and Greens fault, which I think is very intelligent of him to be able to do that, but also just kind of like take the blame. Like you can't take responsibility for things. Like you need to take the blame to an extent. This is how I personally felt about it. I did not enjoy doing the episode. This is the first time I've done an episode where I felt like this. And yeah, I just wanted to let you guys know about that. He he kind of just went on these little tangents in a sense that he wouldn't let me speak. He wouldn't let me say anything. He got he got like very angry when I called it Goldstein and like fair, that's like it's accurate response. But he seemed like not very know-it-all because obviously he's a politician. He does know it all. But he seemed very... You don't know everything. You um, Not you don't know everything. You don't know anything. This is how I personally felt. Uh, yeah, that's... I think that's all I had to say. If you guys felt the same way about this, please respond. Uh, who should I interview next? Straight up. I don't know. Thank you for listening to the podcast. This has been great. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Oh, do I... Is that like something I should say for this one? Like, I hope you enjoyed the episode because I don't know if I want you guys to have enjoyed the episode in a sense, but I don't know if it's selfish of me to be like, don't enjoy the episode. Um, if you guys have any other guests, I really, I really need some guests. I'm in talks with the police commissioners. No, not like not the police I mean, to set up some kind of interview in terms of talking to them about the Black Lives Matter movement because I think the most important thing right now is having conversations, but at the same time, I'm going to have to work out a way because I feel like it's very like privileged of me as a white male to be like, Oh, I'll ask the questions instead of giving a black voice the opportunity to do that. So I will try to arrange with a person of color to do the interview as in asking the questions, maybe make it some kind of discussion. We'll see, but thank you very much for listening to the podcast. I hope you all enjoyed. Thanks. Also, just when I add, Tim Wilson has done some amazing work. I'm not going to try and deny that to everyone. I think he is very respectable and quite an amazing man considering all the work he's done. This is just an experience I had with him. I am not attempting to try and make you guys see him differently or vote for him differently. I'm simply just saying my experience with him, but I don't think I've necessarily lost respect for him. It's just my opinion on how he acts in real life has changed, but I still think he's a very smart political person in parliament. So yeah, thanks.